The text is Mark chapter 8. I encourage you to turn there uh, in your pew Bibles. It's on page uh, 844, or uh, you have to find it in your own Bibles if you don't have a pew Bible there. But please, please take it in by hearing it, take it in by reading it. As you turn there, I was thinking about a, uh, a, an event so very, very clear in, the, uh, in, the, in my life. Uh, I was 19 years old. I was uh, so very educated at that point. I had a whole year of college behind me. I was the smartest man I knew. Um, I came to talk to my parents about a plan that I had for my life, a plan that involved me changing what we had talked about me doing for that, that first summer out of college, and I uh, surprised my parents by coming home from college just so I could talk with them. I, I thought I had the best plan in place and the best plan for presenting to my parents. Came up with a budget, came up with a plan, came up with a schedule, came up with all of this. And my parents, because they were being confronted with this rather quickly, were uh, uh, wanting to slow down the process. Well, I will say that the smartest man that I knew at that time, me, um, the plan, in, in retrospect, was probably not the best. For the conversation went something like this. As I was talking to my mom and my dad, at some point the conversation was not going as I wanted it to. And so as I was talking to them, I decided there was a card that I could play. After all, I was 19. Some of you all know where this is going, right? Some of you may have walked this path and you know how treacherous it is. I didn't know, uh, but my father was very quick to inform me when I laid it on the table and said, well, Dad, you do know uh, that I am an adult. And I can make my own decisions. I had this great plan, uh, but I had not fully thought through the implications of that, seeing as how mom and dad were paying for the bulk of my college studies. And my dad basically said, all right, if we want to walk down this path, we can walk down it. I don't think you're going to like where it leads. And it took me just a very short moment to realize, well, yes, in the eyes of, of the law, in terms of chronology, I could be placed in that category of a man, uh, but yet I was still very dependent on them as a son. Plans worked out well. Uh, we were able to work through it, but it was not according to my plan. It was not according to how I thought that conversation would go. Most in particular was I was quick to assert who I was, but was not quick to embrace the full implication of what that meant. I'm glad that maybe I am a little smarter, at least smart enough to know that I am not the smartest man that I know any longer. And my dad, and as I look back on him, was a whole lot smarter than me in that day. Mark chapter 8, we see a conversation continuing with Jesus and his disciples. As he's talking with his disciples, remember, this is not just the few sentences that we have in Scripture. This would have been as they were traveling, as they were walking around, as they were there in Caesarea Philippi. Remember, this is a city, Caesarea Philippi, uh, named after Philip the Tetrarch, son of Herod the Great, right? And also named after Caesar, a wise move by Philip so that you give homage to the God King, the, the King who walks among us, they would call him Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord, they were made to say. So this city in which uh, Caesar and Pan, the, uh, the, the, the made-up God of uh, uh with the, uh, uh, the body and uh, the legs of a, of a goat and the, the torso of a man, this uh, a false god uh, was also celebrated there. And in the midst of, of, of these other practices, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And now he speaks to 
the mission and the ministry that's before him. Let's read this together. Uh, We find it Mark chapter 8. We're going to read verses 31, 32, and 33. Very brief passage. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, remember this is Jesus' favorite phrase for speaking of himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Pray with me. We thank you, Lord, that your word is living and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it does divine surgery upon our hearts and our lives. Lord, I pray that it would change us by our encounter with it. May we hear it. May we read it. May we memorize and meditate upon it. May we live it out, Lord God. May it be written on our hearts. Father, we thank you that though the flower fades, the grass withers, that your word endures forever. Father, teach us in this moment, we pray. Through Jesus our Lord, amen. There's so many discussions about the Bible. When, when you're talking with people about the Bible, when you're talking to people uh, about, about Scripture, about the message of the Gospel of Genesis through Revelation, there are literally thousands of questions that will come up. And people will, will want to very rapidly take you down rabbit trails. And, and matter of fact, many Christians live in fear that if they were to talk to people about Jesus, talk to people about the gospel, then they would be asked a question uh, that they didn't have the answer for and that they would just ruin that evangelistic encounter. Well, let me assure you here this morning, let me give you and put your, put your mind at rest that when you share Jesus with people, when you open the word and you talk to them about the gospel, just, just be at peace you will get asked questions that you don't know the answer for. It's going to happen. Just, just know that that is a matter of fact. I and every pastor I know get asked questions that we have to answer sincerely and say, that is a great question. Let me go do some study about that and get back with you. And, and let me tell you, there's something so much more refreshing to having somebody say, when, when you ask them a question, when they ask you a question, for you to say to them, that is a good question, let me go and study it and get back with you, rather than you making up an answer. Many people think, well, I need to make something up on the spot, otherwise I'll lose them forever, and that's not the case. But many people will try to take you down rabbit trails, and there is one simple thing that I would encourage you to always seek to do when, when you're dealing with talking to people about the gospel, and that is make a note with them of some of the rabbit trails. They may say something like this. Well, if after uh, uh, Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and they gave birth to Cain and Abel and, uh, and Cain slew his brother and he was banished, who, who did he marry? Because we read about the marriage of that and there's, there's several different ideas about how that came to pass, but that's, that's a, an interesting question. But let me ask you this. Does eternity really hinge on the answer to that question? Is, is that really the question that they have uh, concerning the, uh, the answers that they're seeking for their life? Uh, is that really uh, the most pressing thought, or is that just a, a, a concern that's just thrown up uh, to kind of derail the conversation? It may be something that they've wondered, but uh, I encourage you to take this approach. So that's a great question, and we can certainly talk all about that. But let's start with things of first importance. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? 
Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, which I commend to you very highly. The book by Tim Keller, The Reason for God. And it speaks about encounters just such as that. That we would say, we would not belittle a question that somebody would ask, but we would say, is there not a more important question that we can discuss first? And that is, who is this Jesus? And he gives this uh, synopsis of the importance of that in his book. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? He says, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. It is the issue of the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection that we must wrestle with. And it is that that we must proclaim to the nations. This is what the Apostle Paul said, I have purposed to know nothing among you other than Jesus and him crucified. We can talk about so much, but let's go to the cross. And Jesus takes his disciples to the cross here. They're in Caesarea Philippi. He's continuing in his conversation with them, pressing them to the cross. He is the Christ. We've heard that testimony last week. And even Jesus' commendation of that, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for you did not learn this from man, but from the Spirit. This is of God, he says. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But his mission... His mission is the cross. And verse 31, verse 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. So he begins talking about what's going to happen. They're in this place, and remember, they're sitting in the shadow of the temple that would have been there to Caesar, right there, as well as the shrine to that Greek god Pan. But it says, Jesus taught plainly, the Son of Man, I, Jesus says, I'm going to die. I, I am going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. He was going to a certain death, a crushing message to his disciples right then. As, as just then they had heard in the conversation, you are the Messiah. You are the one that we have been waiting for. And he says, let me tell you what's happening next. I am going to be rejected by all those in leadership. I'm going to be crushed. I'm going to be killed. I'm a suffer. Rejected. And then rise. Put yourself in their sandals just for a moment and imagine what they were hearing. One commentator tried to, and I think he uses... I think he uses some good language that helps us begin to kind of to kind of think about the, what this must have been like right then. Now think about this. Think about as you read this. We, we this commentator says you might as well have a football captain to tell his team that he was intending at that moment to let the opposition score ten goals right away. Here's our here's our game plan. We're going to let the opposition score ten goals right away. This commentator was British, by the way, so ten goals would have been one point apiece rather than seven. Football, you know the difference there. Uh, but this wasn't what Peter and the rest of them had in mind, the commentator continues. He said they may not have thought of Jesus as a military leader, but they certainly didn't think of him as going straight to his death. As Charlie Brown once said, 
this commentator quotes, winning ain't everything, but losing ain't anything. Jesus seemed at that moment to be saying, I'm going to lose. Worse, he was saying, and I want you to come with me. They had just celebrated the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, but now they're struggling that he's not the Messiah that they were expecting. They were expecting a royal domain to be established. That that God's kingdom would reign from the Sea of Galilee to the Mediterranean. That, That there would begin a worldwide reign. That all of the kings of the Gentiles would have to come to Jerusalem and bring their offerings there and, and bow before Him and petition Jesus upon the throne for peace. And that Messiah would come and purify the temple and He would, uh, the services there would then again, once again be filled with the Shekinah glory of God right there to be lifted up and that the temple doorpost would shake as Isaiah saw. That's what they were expecting in that day. They thought these Gentiles, these Romans, who have taken our taxes, who, who have pushed us around, they'll be thrown out forever. And the Torah, it, it'll be proclaimed all over Israel once again. That's what they're expecting in that day. And Jesus comes with a plan that could only be described as scandalous. Scandalous. Now, he could have said it in this way. He could have said, now listen, guys, we got a tough battle ahead. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. There's going to be a few years of a hard fight, but it will work out. Just hang tough, he could have said. It's a battle, but we're up for it. Are we up for it? It could have been that battle speech from Braveheart. It could have been the, the battle speech from Gladiator or any of those epic movies where... The, the general of the troop stands before on horseback and rides up and down, rallying the troop that though the odds are against them, that they will prevail. And Jesus does speak of the prevailing, but He speaks of a path in battle that they had not anticipated, they did not expect, and quite frankly, did not want. The Messiah, this, this King that they were expecting, He wasn't going to die on the battlefield with a sword in his hand. He was not going to fall like a mighty warrior seeking to overthrow the Roman oppressors. He would die the shameful, shameful, brutal death of the cross. And Jesus describes it. And He doesn't describe it in a way of saying, oh, by the way, there will be a suicide bomber who will come and take my life. He doesn't describe it as John Wilkes Booth or Lee Harvey Oswald will get a a lucky shot in and I'll be the one that falls. It would be no assassin. It would be the focus and the concentrated attention of the highest courts of the land. He said, all those that people hold in esteem and authority will say, I am wrong. They will call me a liar. They will call me a devil. The elders of Israel, the high priests, the leading Pharisees gathered in the Sanhedrin, the highest court of the land, the court, the only court of appeal that you had, the 70 members that would have heard them out. All of them would listen to the evidence. They would examine Jesus' life and they would conclude that they were doing God's work by ending his life right there. You need to understand that he was not saying, oh, I'll be lynched by a mob. 
he said, I will be officially arrested. I will be tried in front of the Roman governor, the Jewish king, and the Supreme Court. I would be found guilty in the eyes of the law and sentenced to death. So pause there just for a moment as you stand in the, the sandals of the disciples and think about that. We know. We know He was without sin. We know that there was no guilt in our Savior. But He was presenting this to His disciples and saying, this will be the consensus of those in authority. And I'm going to die. Now follow me. This is not new. The disciples would have had experience in the knowledge and the promise that this would be the type of Messiah. But that's not what they wanted. And we will pick and choose those things that we hear that suit the things that we want. Remember that these would have been men that would have heard since their childhood, would have heard discussed, and as as they traveled with Jesus, as they were in the synagogues for worship on the Sabbath, they would have heard Isaiah 52 and 53. That, that portrait of the suffering servant. Remember this. Isaiah 52, 14 says, And many were astonished, for his appearance was so marred beyond even human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. 53 verse 4, it says, He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed Him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Further, it goes on to say, He is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, oppressed, afflicted, a lamb that's led to the slaughter, that His grave would be made among the wicked. And it was the will of the Lord that He would be crushed and put to grief. But then it goes on to say, that out of the anguish of his soul, the anguish of his soul, in that way, would God be satisfied? Would Christ see the travail of his soul? So Jesus, he outlines a path before that none of them wanted, none of them expected. Before we continue on to see how Jesus deals with Peter, deals with them in this situation, we, we have to, to have to pause and, and think about the plans that we lift up to God in prayer. The, the plans for our life, the plans uh, for our ministry, the plans that we lift up and say, God, this, this is my plan. Bless it, I pray. Lord, this is how I believe I can best be used for your kingdom. W- would you go ahead and, and, and say, okay, go for it? Would you, would you bless this? And and then I'll serve you and I'll do a good job of it and I'll be happy. And so often the Lord wipes that away. You know why He does that, right? Because He loves us. (laughs) I've said it so many times. The Lord loves me so much He doesn't let my plans come to fruition. (laughs) For He has better plans. He says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to give you hope in a future. Plans for welfare, not for evil. Now, this is not that we would be healthy. Our pocketbooks would be full. This is not that always we would know healing and that we would know deliverance from the things of this world. This is not simply that the Lord has plans to give us a better job. No, that He has given us a better eternal employment. 
and that his path there is perfect even when we don't like it. Our prayer at that point needs to be, Lord God, if it be thy will, this is what I see, but Lord, if it's wrong, would you please, would you please wipe that from the table? Nevertheless, not my will. Wipe that from the table, Lord God, but your will be done. And beyond that, Lord God, may I love it. Martin Luther, in his coarse way, as he's sitting there at the table talking to his students one day, and his students were talking about the providence and the plan of God, and as he was talking to them, he said, you need to understand that it is not our desire, that it is not our pleasure with God's plan that's of importance. It is that it's God's plan, and it is the best for us. He said, even if God, forgive me, this is Luther, not me. He said it in German, so I can't say it in German. He said, even if God were to call me to eat the dung from the street, He said, I would do so, and not only do so, but do so gladly, for I know if it's the Lord's plan, then it is best for me. Making a point with young students, no doubt. But he he was saying that to say that when we find God's plan distasteful, we pray, Lord, would you change my heart that I would see the glory that is in your path. And, And that's what he is talking to them. But what happens? What happens? Peter takes Jesus aside. Now, oh my goodness, we think about that. Jesus, come here, come here. We got to talk. Put his arm around his head. I, I don't think you thought this through. He takes. I don't mean to to make light. I don't mean to be irreverent. But he takes Jesus aside to set him straight. And, and he's not taking him far aside because it says that they're in the presence of the disciples. All this is going on and they're traveling. And this is, you know, a, an extended conversation. But he rebukes Jesus. He says, no, may it never be, we find in a parallel account. And when you read that, we think at first, well, Peter just doesn't, he said, wait, 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 no, 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 no. We can stop that. We, we can make sure that, you know, there is, there is that element of compassion of one human being to another saying, I don't want to see any human being die in such a grievous and tragic way. Certainly may that not be, but there's so much more behind it. Basically, Peter is sitting there saying, no, no, you are to be the victorious Messiah. And so now consider this, Jesus' response to Peter when he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Once again, we read that and say, wow, Jesus, wasn't that an overreach? Come on now, that's, that's, a, that's a little bit harsh. But consider this, that would have been the perfect plan of Satan at the moment. You see, Satan would have been absolutely content to endorse a victorious general who would overthrow Rome, that, that Israel would be established militarily once again, that the nation would be there, let Israel rule on earth, but do not, Satan cries, do not let sin be defeated on Calvary. Let all these things happen, I'm fine with that, so long as sin is never atoned for, so long as satisfaction is never given, so long that sin remains unforgiven, everything else just great. He would have gone on to say, let the leaders manage the nations however they choose, but don't let them have the cross. Don't let them have the atonement. Don't let them have the satisfaction of God. Let the world be run any way you want. But in pride, Satan would cry out, do not deal with eternity. Let sins remain unforgiven, and that will show God. That would have been victory for Satan. 
I think of, of how many times we see Satan's causes furthered by good intentions. We've, we've heard that phrase, right? The idea that, that, that we could look at that and say, well, would it be bad to stop the death, the wrongful death, the, the falsely accused life of Jesus forfeit right there? Would it be wrong to stop that? And certainly in a judicial sense in that day, it would not have been wrong, but eternally it would have been devastating. For you and I would still be dead in our sins were Christ to have not died for them. You see, Hebrews 9.22 summarizes it so clearly. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. For sin entered this world and death came with it. And it was in the death of Christ, the second Adam, the death of Christ, our Savior, the true Messiah, that the true and eternal victory came. Poor Peter. Quick-speaking Peter. His, his mouth permanently shaped like his own foot. But one thing we learn here, by the way, is it is possible for a true disciple of Jesus in carelessness or immaturity to become an instrument of Satan. Not possessed by the devil, that's not what's happening here, but that he was in immaturity and carelessness pressing for a path that was not God's path and to oppose the message of the cross. So where did this come from in, in Peter's life? What was Peter's motive behind it? Well, there are several things that we can draw from the life of Peter and that we can, can draw from the text that these were well-meaning distractions, a love for Jesus, certainly. that they wanted, He didn't want Jesus to go away. He wanted to continue in ministry. He wanted to continue to learn and walk with Jesus. He loved Jesus. A well-meaning distraction from the path. But there was others. Think about this, a misguided distraction. This isn't the plan, Jesus, that I was, I was expecting. I'm looking for something different, but, but also think about this a little bit. There was a bit of self-confidence and ego and arrogance involved in Peter's actions. Like I said, he was seeking to, he, he was seeking to teach Jesus. And that comes up. You may never have really given any thought to that phrase when he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Now we think about that, just, just get back there, that you're not in my way and that sort of thing. But there's a, a very significant thing to, to looking at what Peter was doing, what was going on there at the moment. Peter had taken Jesus aside and was basically that moment saying, I shall be the teacher and you shall be the student and I will teach you. You'll learn from me. And what Jesus is saying very, very succinctly is this, do not presume to go ahead of me as rabbi. Do not presume to lead me. I am the teacher and you are the disciple. That's a relationship that was so very clear. Yes, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But never let it be mistaken that in righteousness they understood that Jesus was the teacher and they were the disciples. Oh, forgive us, Lord God, for how many times we, we try to teach God. Try to teach God our plans. Job Suffered from that later in his life, didn't he? In his struggles. God had to tell him one time, said, Joe, put your pants on. We need to talk. They said, gird up your loins. Yes, yeah, he said, gird up your loins. But we say, put your pants on. Let's talk. Let's talk as men here, okay? God said, were you there when I set the mountains to their height or appointed the course of the ocean and the seas? Can you wrestle Leviathan from the deep? He says, I can. You need to make sure that you're not trying to lead me. Get thee behind me, Satan, Jesus says, for crucifixion. 
Crucifixion is the path. Conclude with a, a quote from a sweet little old lady. Sweet little old lady was the widow of a pastor, and she was continuing to be sitting under the teaching until she was not able to get to church, and for the last several years of her life, uh, she was kind of a bit reclusive, uh, not communicating with very much with people. Uh, the next pastor uh, that was there after her husband uh, was very faithful to, uh, to, to, to visit and to see her. Uh, his name was uh, Pastor Taylor, A.B. Taylor. And as he sat with her one day, he, he asked the sweet, saintly woman, he said, what do you think about Jesus? Her answer was, Mr. Taylor, I've thought a lot lately about the difference between Jesus and all the beasts that were slain under the law. The beasts were dragged there with ropes to a place where they would be killed. But when my Savior came to die, He laid down His life Himself. No man could take away His life because He is God as well as man. And He laid down His life willingly for me. The pastor asked her and he said, he said, you've given this a lot of thought. And that is exactly right. That our Savior did this in love. She responded, she said, Mr. Taylor, my husband and I used to talk a great deal about this. For you see, we realized there's really nothing else much worth talking about. That we deal with the Savior who in love points to this message, presses the contrary notions aside, and He said, I will suffer. I will be rejected. And I will die so that you may live. Jesus would not be deterred from that. Neither should we be distracted from seeing how great is that love of a Savior who would go to the cross that we might know Him forever and ever. Further, that we would not ever seek in living in that newness of life to try to teach Jesus, to try to instruct or lead God, to have Him be our disciple for a moment because we have better plans. In that moment, He says, Get thee behind me, Satan, for I know the plans I have for you far better than you could ever dream. Pray with me. Forgive us, Lord God, for those moments where we in arrogance and distraction would seek to prevail upon you to simply endorse our plans and not listen to yours. But Father, we praise you that the plan of the cross, the purpose of the suffering of our Savior was out of love for us that we would know eternity. Lord, May we go forth in knowing the richness of that love, the joy of that salvation, that we were so loved that You, Lord God, sent Christ for this purpose, and You, Lord Jesus, endured it. And that we, in the fulfillment of this, in our salvation, Lord, what You have accomplished, that You would see the satisfaction, the travail of Your soul. Lord, that You would be 
pleased to look upon us and to love us for you have paid for our sins. So we, we draw near to you, Lord God. We listen and we follow in Jesus' name. Amen.